As Lee indicated, we are looking today at 1 John 4, 7 through 12, so I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. Before we get started with that, I would just like to thank you all as a church for making it possible for Lee and for me to attend the Gospel Coalition Conference this past week in Indianapolis and um, to be refreshed in the Lord's presence, to enjoy times of worship. I have the opportunity here to play an instrument and to be in the congregation, as it were, on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and not have a guitar in my hands, and just to be able to focus on the Lord and worship that way was very refreshing and very meaningful to me, and I'm grateful for that opportunity, so thank you for that, and the opportunity to hear um, preaching from God's gifted preachers of the church, and to uh, have an opportunity to connect with a mentor from college and to hear him preach and be reminded of and uh, refocused on the treasure that Jesus is was very helpful to me and I trust it will be to you as well as you receive the fruit of that. So as we look at 1 John 4, 7 through 12 and call your attention to those verses and to ask you to hear God's word now. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, Lee mentioned doctrine, and we do want to be faithful in doctrine, in teaching what the Bible teaches. And when you think about doctrine, you might think about theologians, and theologians like to... Uh, focus on German and it makes them sound more intellectual or something and they come up with phrases like Sitzenleben. You all know what that means, right? Sitzenleben just means situation in life and German theologians in particular would talk about when you're looking at scripture you have to find the Sitzenleben, the situation in life, what was the context and we all have a common situation or situation in life and the situation is this that we all long for love. Every single one of us, we long for love. We long to be loved and we long to love. We were created that way. God created us in love, to love, to be loved, to love God and to love others. But we also have a common situation in that because of sin, we cannot do what God commands and requires. So the situation is we all long for love. We long to be loved. We long to love. And we don't have to look far to find this in our culture. Almost everyone agrees about the importance of love. To recognize this, all you have to do is look at the songs that we sing. All you need is love. Love is all you need. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. Love makes the world go round. Put a little love in your heart. Love will find a way, the glory of love, the power of love. I want to know what love is. Love me tender. Love, love me do. How deep is your love? How sweet it is to be loved by you. I just called to say I love you. 
I honestly love you, endless love, everlasting love. And they called it puppy love. And most importantly, muskrat love. <laughs> Whatever that is. So we were created in love and for love, to love God and to love others. But because of sin, we cannot do what God commands and requires. Our situation is very much like what Phil Keggy recorded in his song, As the Ruin Falls. He said this, all this is flashy rhetoric about loving you, talking to God. I never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you, all friends, merely to serve my turn. So whether we're talking to God or talking to someone else, that's the case that for all of us. We've been mercenary and self-seeking. He goes on to say, peace, reassurance, pleasure are the goals I seek. I cannot crawl one inch outside my proper skin. I talk of love. A scholar's parrot may talk Greek. But self-imprisoned always end where I begin. So we all long for love. We were created for love and in love. We were created to know love from God, to love God in return, and to love others. But because of sin, we cannot do what God commands and requires. Now that may sound depressing, but it is a reminder that none of us have arrived in keeping the commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. So that's our situation. It's common to all of us. But now we need to look at the foundation. The foundation in this text is the reality of God's love. And we see it in verse 8. God is love. So God is love. That's who God is. That's what God is. God is love. And God sent his son to show us love in verses 9 and 10. Now when we look at verse 8 and see that God is love we need to recognize that that's what the text says. God is love. We don't dare turn it around and say, well, love is God. That's common in our culture. Love, that's, that's the highest value. And so love becomes God. But as C.S. Lewis has pointed out, when love becomes a God, it becomes a demon. So we dare not turn it around. It's not love is God. It's God is love. God defines what love is. God defines love. Our idea of love must conform to God's idea of love. So we must not impose our definition of love upon God. Sometimes we get in this position where we say, well, a loving God would never fill in the blank. And we might think that we know better than God what love is. And so we tell God what it means to love and how he must love us and how he must act in this world. But the Bible says that God is love, so God defines what love is and God demonstrates what love is and he's shown us what love is in sending his son, verses 9 and 10. Now, we read over that so casually that God sent his son. He gave his son, his only son. And yet we need to stop and to pause and feel the reluctance of the father to give and to send his son. Any loving parent would be reluctant to give up a child. Now the cynical among us might say, well, which one and on which day? But we know in our love for our children that 
we would not give them up. God, the Father, was reluctant to give up his son. Kevin DeYoung is the father of eight children, and at the Gospel Coalition Conference this past week, he jokingly said, you don't love all eight of them at the same time. He said, that's why you have eight of them. God always loved his son. The father has eternal love for the son. And so his reluctance to send his son, his reluctance to give the son is infinite. It's beyond anything we could imagine. And yet God not only sent his son, but he sent him to be our propitiation. We saw that word propitiation back in 1 John 2. Verses 1 and 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We saw then that to propitiate, propitiation means to satisfy or to turn away wrath. And so in Jesus Christ, on the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus satisfied the wrath, the demands of God's anger, his righteous anger against sin. In that moment, all the righteous anger of God against sin was turned away from us who deserved it and directed at the Son, the only Son, who had always known love from the Father. So God turned his wrath away from us to his son, and Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He satisfied God's wrath. He took the wrath that we deserved. We see in verse 10 that love originates with God. Because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God has always been love. There has always been love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for all eternity past. As we've said, God is love, and he is love because he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's able to express that love for all eternity. So love originates with God, not us. From eternity past, God has only known love, the love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But in the gospel, we are offered what we could never know. That is perfect love through Jesus Christ, who for all eternity has only known that perfect love from his father with the exception of the moment when he was on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We come to verse 11 and we see the phrase, if God so loved us. And it would be possible to take that phrase out of context and say, see, It says, if God so loved us. We don't really know that God loved us. That's not what this passage is saying. It's not a hypothetical saying, well, if God really did love us, it's stating the truth. God did really love us. And since, would be another way to translate it, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So when you read that phrase, if God loved us, it does not mean that there's any doubt about God loving us in such a way that he sent his only son to rescue us from sin and restore us to himself. Rather, the word if refers to whether or not we recognize and know and believe and affirm and have experienced the love of God in Christ. 
It refers to whether or not we have embraced that love by faith. And if we've come to bank our lives upon him and him alone. So if we believe and embrace that kind of love from God, it has radical implications for our lives in this world. So as we've pointed out, we could rephrase that statement, if God so loved us and say, since God so loved us, if we recognize and know that God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. As we think about the love of God for us, we need to be reminded of the depths of that love, the extent of that love. And we see that in Romans 5, verses 6 through 10, which says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So what Romans 5 and Verses 6 through 10 is telling us is the extent of God's love, the depth of God's love, that while we were dead in sin, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to get our lives cleaned up. He didn't wait for us to get rid of all of our bad habits. He'd still be waiting. God sent his son while we were enemies, while we were sinners, and it was then that Christ died for us. So that's the foundation, the reality of God's love. There's no question about it. It's certain God has demonstrated his love in that way in Christ. And there are, as we've said, radical implications. And the implication is the reason for our love. So verse 11, since God has loved us in Christ, we must love one another. Because we know God's love to us in Christ it would be absurd for us to withhold that kind of love from one another. If we claim to know that God has given his son for us and we say, but I'm not going to love you, I'm not going to forgive you, it is inconsistent, it's unthinkable. Since God has loved us in Christ, we must love one another. That's the implication of this text. But the reality is we can only give what we have first received. So this love of God in Christ must first be received. If we try to love others without first receiving that, we're serving out of an empty well. There's nothing there to give. We must first receive, and then once we have received, we are enabled to give. So this kind of love that we're called to, it's not a moralistic thing. It's not... Just do this and do that, and God will think better of you. It's God has given his son. If you recognize that truth, then demonstrate it. If you've received that love, then demonstrate it to others. God is in the process of renewing us in the image of God to reflect his glory. So we were created for love and in love, to love God, to love others, but We've all been impacted by sin, and so we can't do 
what God commands and requires. And so we need God to renew us in his image, to restore that image of God in us so that we can demonstrate this love that we know in Christ to others. Now, in 1 John, we've talked a lot about love. The Bible talks about a lot about love, and someone might ask, well, do we have to talk about love again? We might be accused of being Johnny One Note. Is that the only thing you can think of for a sermon? Love, 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 shmove. Well, we talk about love because the Bible talks a lot about love and because God knows we need help in this area. We talk about love over and over because the Bible does. And the message is simple, right? Love one another. That's a simple message, but it's not easy. Hear that command, love one another, and anyone who responds easy peasy, lemon squeezy, nice and cheesy, it's not so easy. You've heard me say before that a little ditty to live in love with saints above, that will be such glory to live below with those we know is quite a different story. It's not easy to love one another because we've all been impacted by sin. The message is simple. Think about how you would like to be loved, how you would like people to treat you, and then think about others the same way. Speak to and about others the way that you would like to be spoken to and about. Act towards others in the way that you would like to be acted towards. That's simple, but it's not easy. So as we think about love, we think about what love is, and love really is to desire and to do what is best for others. C.S. Lewis talks about love in his book, Mere Christianity. And he says, you're told to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do you love yourself? He says, when I look into my own mind, I find that I do not love myself by thinking myself a dear old chap or having affectionate feelings. I do not think that I love myself because I'm particularly good, but just because I am myself and quite apart from my character. I might detest something which I have done. Nevertheless, I do not cease to love myself. In other words, that definite distinction that Christians make between hating sin and loving the sinner is what we've been practicing all along with respect to ourselves. We love ourselves, we want the best for ourselves, even when we can't stand the things that we do or have done. And so, by extrapolation, the way we love other people is the same way. Even when we can't stand the things that they've done, we want the best for them. We pray for the best for them. That's what love is. We've all heard of the golden rule. Jesus in Matthew 7, 11, and 12 said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The Father loves to give good gifts to those who ask him. Therefore, Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do so also to them. So you know love from God because he graciously gives good gifts to those who ask him. So you also must do to one another what you would want others to do to you. And again in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 31, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, 
Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. The message is simple. As you wish others would do to you, do so to them. That's what it means to love. To love is to desire and to the best for other people. Now, sometimes in our self-love, we're confused about what's best for us, and we go after things that are broken cisterns that can hold no water. But in our best moments, when we're thinking clearly about what's best for us, that's the way we're to love others, to desire the best and to do the best for them. So this kind of love is something that we need help with. We can't do it in and of our own strength. It's not natural. It's supernatural. We need the power of God's Holy Spirit to enable us to love in this way. We've come to the Lord's table today. We've partaken of the bread and the cup. And in communion, God nourishes us to love one another. When we come to the Lord's table, we come to feed on God's grace, to fuel our love for one another, and we see the love of God in Christ displayed again in the bread and the cup, and God gives us the sustenance that we need to love one another. So we've all been impacted by sin, and we live among others like us, and that's why it's hard to love. That's why this command is simple but not easy. Because the other people that we're called to love are like us. We love others in their sin because Christ loved us in ours. And so for me or you or any of us to withhold love from another because they're sinful is inconsistent with receiving and embracing God's love towards us in Christ. So we're called to love one another in in sin, in their sin, because Christ loved us in ours. We're called to love one another, not only in our sin, but in our weakness. We're weak in so many ways, physically, emotionally, in all sorts of different ways. Robertson McQuilkin, at the peak of his career, resigned as president of Columbia Bible College in 1990 to become the full-time caregiver for his wife, Muriel, who had Alzheimer's. Robertson did this, he said, because Muriel was much happier when he was with her. Years later, in a radio interview, Dennis Rainey asked if he had had any regrets about the transition from college president to caregiver. McQuilkin said, I never think about what if. I don't think what if is in God's vocabulary. So I don't even think about what I might be doing instead of changing her diaper or what I might be doing instead of spending two hours feeding her. It's the grace of God, I'm sure. Rainey asked a follow-up question. But do you ever think about what you may have given up to care for her? McQuilkin responded, I don't feel like I've given anything up. Our life is not the way we plot it or plan it. All along, I've just accepted whatever assignment the Lord gave me. This was his assignment. I know I'm not supposed to have that kind of reaction, but you asked me, and I have to be honest. I never went to a support group. I had enough of my own burdens without taking on everybody else's. Sometimes I have accepted an invitation to speak at one of these, 
There's a lot of angry people. They're angry at God for letting this happen. Why me? A loving God would never do this. They're angry at the one thing, that, at the one they care for, and they feel guilty about it because they can't explain why they're angry at them. I say, in acceptance, there's peace. Now, it was about that time that one who was regarded as a Christian leader said, well, if you've got a spouse who has Alzheimer's and their mind is deteriorating and they don't know who you are, then you don't really need to be faithful to them. You don't really need to stick around and you can go look for some other companionship and someone who knows what that would be like spoke into that situation, Johnny Erickson Tata, who has been paralyzed since she was a young person. She said any marriage has its challenges but add a serious disability and they can at times seem overwhelming. This is why God instituted marriage as a lifelong commitment. Heaven knows it requires vows, solemn and serious, to weather a couple through the demands of disability. Marriage is designed to be a picture of God's sacrificial love for us, she said. Alzheimer's disease is never an accident in a marriage. It falls under the purview of God's sovereignty. In the case of someone with Alzheimer's, this means God's unconditional and sacrificial love has an opportunity to be even more gloriously displayed in a life together. God has graciously given us examples of that within our own body. Dale and Jan Hoover. Jan's caring for Dale on a daily basis. Dick Gale and his wife of many, many years, Bobby as we knew her, Barb to him. We've seen examples of this kind of love where someone pours their life out, they sacrifice because they've experienced that from Jesus Christ himself. And they know that love, they've received that love, and it naturally flows out of them, supernaturally better flows out of them. We're seeing that as we watch Tom Gammon care for Mary. Some of us saw that as we watched Bill Lowe care for a friend of ours, Scott Davis, who had Lou Gehrig's ALS disease. And we watched him deteriorate little by little by little. Bill and others came along and served him day by day with simple things like putting food in their mouth, helping them wipe their face or their nose. God calls us to love one another. And we could ask who? Well, the who in this text is particularly brothers and sisters in Christ. It's written to the church, and so he's talking about other believers Now, that could be comforting in some moments. Oh, we just have to love believers. We don't have to love those unbelievers. As Mark was praying, that those awful unbelievers out in the world, we don't have to love them. No, we know better than that. Jesus said we have to love all people. We have to love even our enemies. And Galatians says that we're to do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. But this past week in Indianapolis, as I was in a hotel for the conference, 3.10 a.m. in the morning. There's a sudden pounding on a door that was maybe next door to my room or just a couple doors away, and it was loud. So he's going, thinking, what is going on? Well, there was a concert across the street at the basketball arena, and I suppose some people went out after that, and the bars had closed, and it's 
now time for people to go to their hotel rooms and somebody got locked out or they had a fight or something and I'm thinking, God, I'm glad I don't have to love unbelievers, just have to love one another, right? (laughs) Or then the other day when a car pulls down in the cemetery road and a sheriff's cruiser is pursuing it and then two, three sheriff's cruisers behind it and then the car that pulled down the cemetery road realizes they're not getting out of there so they cut across the church lawn, our backyard and then they're driving circles around there and the sheriff's cruiser is going across there. I'm thinking, I don't want to love people like that. (laughs) But we're called to love one another and everyone, even our enemies. So that's the who, but how? The only way we can do it is by continually looking to the cross of Christ, continually being reminded of the love that God has displayed to us in our sin. We're called to love both in the larger body of Christ and in the local body of Christ. With the Gospel Coalition Conference, you have six or 7,000 people across the larger body of Christ, and you have the opportunity to worship together, and what a great thing that is. But, you know, that's a three-day event. You don't really find out too much about the people around you, and you don't have to rub shoulders with them and really get into their stuff and find out whether, you would be, whether they would be easy to love or not. Several years ago, and six years ago to be exact, we had a Good Friday service in this very location with some people from a church called North Point. It was nice, but it was only one night. We didn't really have the opportunity to get to know each other, and so loving each other in that context is easier, right? You don't see people's weaknesses. You don't see the warts and everything else. You think about homeschooling families. Amy and Aaron Davis, one family among others. You know, homeschooling families don't get a break. They're there 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You've got to learn to love one another or you'll kill one another. For years, we shared an annual worship gathering called Just for Jesus, and we would gather with other local churches, and it was a wonderful time of worship, and it was great to see people that you'd seen the previous year and lovingly greet them. But again, that was once a year. We didn't really get to know them, and it's kind of easy to love people in that situation. And then for a number of months, a year, few years ago, the Korean Presbyterian Church from down the road on Old State Road, they had had an explosion, a gas explosion at their building, so they weren't able to use their building, and so they moved in with us for a while, and we would finish up worship and they would, their Korean service would settle up, set up in here and they had an English-speaking service down in the other end of the building in the chapel. And it was great. We loved seeing them, loved tasting some of their foods, but we knew it was a limited time. So it was a little bit easier to love in that way. But what God is calling us to is a lifelong love for those whose sin is known to us. And this takes place in our families, where we are called to lifelong love for those whose sin is known to us, whether that's a spouse or parent or child. It takes place in the local body of Christ as we've come to be merged together now. We're getting to know one another. And we're going to get to know things about people that display weakness and even sin. 
And so it gives us an opportunity to love in a deeper way and to depend more fully on God's grace to enable us to love. It's like the difference between dating and marriage. In dating, you know, you get yourself all spiffed up. You go sit in a movie theater. You're just sitting there quietly with one another. You go out to eat and have a nice meal and you're looking your best. You're having fun together. You're doing fun things. It's pretty easy in that situation to act loving towards one another. But then you get married, and then you wake up, and you've got bedhead, you've got morning mouth, you've got no makeup, you haven't shaved, you haven't put on deodorant. It's harder to love when we get up close to people and we know that we've got to love them for the rest of our lives. But... There is a reconciling love that God has displayed to us in Christ that has reconciled us to himself, and that reconciling love enables us to be reconciled with one another, to love one another. So reconciling love that seeks reconciliation, that works for restoration, that glorifies God who has reconciled us in Christ. So whenever a couple comes to me and their marriage is in turmoil and conflict, I want to always encourage them to ask, what would bring the greatest glory to God in this situation? And without question, I think the answer is always, God would be most glorified if this relationship were reconciled and restored. Sometimes it doesn't happen, but I believe that would always be God's desire for that marriage to be reconciled and healed and restored. And so that's what, we're seeking, always ask, what will bring the greatest glory to God? So when you're in a difficult marriage, if you're in a difficult marriage right now, if you're in family conflict, if there's conflict in the local body of Christ, and there always is, I wish it wasn't the case, but it always is. It's part of living among people who've been impacted by sin. So in all those situations, God, what would bring you the greatest glory in this situation? The implication of God's love for us is that we are to love one another. And the demonstration of it, we see it in verse 7. Loving like Christ shows we are born of God and knows God and know God. And the converse is true. Not loving like Christ shows that we do not know God. So if we say we know God, but we refuse to love, it can legitimately be asked, Do you really know God? Are you really born of him? Because if you've been born of God, there is a new life in you. It's the life of the spirit of God that is enabling you, will enable you to love others. And so when that's demonstrated in our lives, it shows that we're born of God and that we know God. Verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God. And that's true for a variety of reasons. No one has ever seen God because God is spirit. God, in his essence, doesn't have a body. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on human flesh, became fully human as well as fully God. But God, in his essence, is spirit, does not have a body. And so in that sense, no one has ever seen God. But no one has ever seen God because God dwells in unapproachable light. No one can see God. Moses asked to see God's glory, and God said, you can't see my glory. No one can see my glory and live. 
And so no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. I think what this is driving at is when we love one another, we are displaying the very character of Christ. We are displaying for the world to see what God is like and who God is, that he is love. And so loving this way displays God's character for the world to see. Back in the early church, there was a leader named Tertullian, and he said something like this, see how these Christians love one another. That's what Christians, God's people, were known for. That's what we are to be known for. Love looks like something. Ultimately, it looks like Jesus. But sometimes it's easy for us to talk about love in these ambiguous kinds of ways. But love looks like something. It looks like desiring and doing what's best for another person. It looks like helping others find their greatest joy in Jesus Christ. One definition of love that I've found helpful is this. Love is laboring, suffering, and dying to enthrall the beloved with what will satisfy him or her most forever, namely God. That's what love is. Laboring, suffering, and even dying to enthrall the beloved with what will satisfy him or her most forever, namely God. And so when we hear this command, this call to love one another, that's what we're called to, to help others be enthralled with the one who will give them the greatest joy and pleasure, namely God. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Since God so loved us, let us love one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love towards us in Jesus Christ, that you gave your only son for us to take the wrath that we deserved, that we might be forgiven and reconciled and restored to you. And Lord, you want to display your great love in us and through us. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would cause this to be true of us, that we would love one another, that we would love all people with the love that we have received from Jesus Christ. Because Lord, you called us the body of Christ. We are the hands and the feet, the eyes and the ears of Jesus in this world. We are the only Bible that some people will read. And so we pray that you would make our lives so reflect the love of God, that your love would be seen, that you would be treasured, and that your people would have great joy in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.